Coming up this week, off-screen, David Oyelo takes us hostage, Dane DeHaan poses for life, Tony Collette and Drew Barrymore assure us they miss you already, we meet Mia Madre, Anthony Hopkins looks for some solace, and Kevin Costner takes us on a tour of McFarland, USA. All those to come and more off-screen. This is... This is Offscreen. Offscreen. The latest film news and reviews. This is Offscreen, the on-screen radio show. Welcome to Offscreen, I'm Van Connor. I'm Calvin Prickett. So shall we start with a little trip to McFarland, USA? Why not? I hear it's delightful. It is. It is delightful, Calvin. It's a bit TV movie, but it is delightful. Uh, so, actually, funnily enough, you, you actually reviewed the last Disney obligatory contractual sports movie with me, which was Million Dollar Arm. I did, yes. And that was... That was just awful. It was... So bland. So, so bland. Dull. I've had vanilla milkshakes more interesting. I, I really have as well. I've I've found more exciting wallpaper paste in my lifetime. But So, Disney are at it again, though. We've got another underdog sports drama. And would you know they've gone and got Kevin Costner for it? Well, it's basically his shtick. It is his shtick, isn't it? Do you think it's a case of like every every you know month or so the mortgage statement comes through and old Costner's just like... Ah, I, tell you, I, haven't, I haven't done cross-country running yet. Time to gear up those sports speeches. <laughs> and so here we are. It's Kevin Costa does cross-country running this time oh, because he's done... I thought things. you were kidding. I thought no, you were actually kidding. No, no, it's actually cross-country. It's actually cross-country running. Okay, so right. this is based on the true story of Jim White, who was a high school uh, gym teacher slash coach, who after an altercation, a heated, anger, <laughs> anger-ridden altercation with a student, uh, was fired and forced to move to a very poor um, Hispanic community in California. Would you guess what it's called? McFarland. It is in fact McFarland. Right. He dis- he notices one day that because of the working conditions under which his students work, they're all picking basically they're crop pickers for their parents effectively. They are basically heat resilient. They are incredibly athletic. They can run at incredible speeds for long periods of time without taking a break because, well, why wouldn't they? It's all they know to do. So it's the incredible underdog story of the X-Men beating other cross-country runners. <laughs> Effectively, it is. And uh, and he then decides, in the grandest of cool runnings-like traditions, to form the first McFarland cross-country running team. Here's a clip. You know, I don't know if you know, but if we keep going the way we're going... You guys have a chance to qualify for state. Really? Yeah, really. But it doesn't matter what I think, okay? I can't do it for you. And I don't have to be the one to tell you that the odds are stacked against you. But if you you believe in yourselves, and maybe more importantly, you find a way to believe in each other, in your teammates, it won't matter what anyone else thinks. That's the beauty of sports. We don't practice to lose, Holmes. I mean, coach. You don't eat the produce, coach. What? You don't eat the produce. First rule of picking. You eat it, you're fired. God, I'm... I'm sorry, guys. I... I didn't. <laughs> so Kevin Costner, sports drama. You, you kind of know what you're getting. Yeah, with, it's, it's with like putting one. on a nice warm pair of slippers. <laughs> That's the best possible comparison for it, actually. It is like putting on there's a nothing, nice There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It's just, oh, it's Kevin Costner doing his thing. I'm, I'm in the mood for it. Let's sit down. Let's enjoy Kevin Costner being a warm, kind... He's the movie dad. 
He kind of is, isn't he? He's he's, it's he's like, the it's like, John I, Ritter of sports. Cinema. I've never met Kevin Costner, but I trust him with my life. It's that kind of. That's why he was Jonathan Kent. Yeah. So what you've got here, because we've only got a minute to do this, what we've got is effectively a comedically dialed down cool runnings with a Hispanic flavouring. The best thing I can best thing I could really describe it as. Um it's it's got that that reliable Kevin Costner performance, you yeah. know. He does that thing, I'm gonna give some arousing inspirational, motivational speeches, and then I'm gonna do some family drama in between. And you know what? He does it all perfectly well. It's it's Costner going for a stroll. It's that kind he of. He doesn't sleepwalk through it. He gives it the edge, you know, what it needs. Exactly. But it, yeah. yeah. Um, so you say you've got his his usual charm. He doesn't call him to do anything you have not seen him do throughout his entire body of work <laughs> so far. Um, and then you've got oh, you've got a couple of disappointments. You've got Maria Bello, who's just playing yet again somebody's wife. And yeah. you remember when Maria Bello was someone interesting to watch? When she wasn't typecast. Yeah, I remember when she was in like Coyote Ugly and things like that, and she was she was actually an inspirational sort of. Little of course, you remember Coyote Ugly. Yeah, I do. I was I, yeah, I was all that age at that time. Um, I quite like Danny Mora, who's got this this Edward James almost like sort of a man of the people character. But MVP trophy goes to Diana Maria uh, Diana Maria Riva is her name as the mother of three of his runners, and she is, she's equal parts, you know, touching drama and absolute hilarity in that sort of Hispanic mum type, stereotypical comedy kind of a way. Um, Nikki Caro, who did Whale Rider, directs this, and she fares slightly less well than Mm. her cast. Her cast are all perfectly able, perfectly enjoyable. She fares less well. And she's got um, Adam Arkapoor, I forget where he's from now, uh, doing the cinematography. And what she's done, she's gone to some beautiful, beautiful cinematography and then whacked a dust filter over it. Oh, it's the Zack Snyder effect. It's, it's like that. But, you know, because there's Mexicans in it, people who, you know, tenuously connected to make, we have to have a dust, sandy sort of a filter over it. Brilliant. And it's a little bit depressing. Um, unfortunately, it's very, very much a TV movie. It yeah. feels very Lifetime movie, very Hallmark. Yes. But Hallmark... With a touch of the Costner, well, so you know what? Not not all bad. No, there's this enjoyable stuff in there. It'll be on Channel Four in Channel Five. Channel Five. Channel Five, Channel 5 in like ten years' time, and my ten, ten months maybe. <laughs> <laughs> my mother will sit down and enjoy it. Jordan Peele, then that's an interesting story this week. So Jordan Peele, who's half of Key and Peele, which yeah, the famous com- comedy duo which started on YouTube, and then did that start on YouTube? Yeah, they, they started on YouTube and then got a massive Comedy Central. I, I have, I had no idea. So I only know it as a Comedy Central series. Yeah. I love the series. I have it on all the time. It finished last week or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so naturally, they're now getting flooded with offers. Well, they have said that part of the reason they have ended the series was to go and make movies together. They want to make one every couple of years and keep it going. It's sort of a Cheech and Chong or Gene yeah. Wilder and. Uh, uh, Richard Pryor kind of a kind of relationship, and I kind of like that idea. Now Jordan Peele's announced that one of his solo projects, he's going to be writing and directing a horror movie for Blumhouse called Get Out, and this is going to be basically using a horror movie to discuss race, which I think is quite intriguing. This is more exciting than practically every horror movie we have announced. This is very because it's the actually case, yeah. being made by someone with a level of intelligence beyond a fourth grader. That name like Shyamalan, yeah, yeah. Should we take a look at Miss You Already, then? This is the uh, the one for the ladies this week. This is... Uh, oh, this is the wine and chocolate screening. The wine and chocolate screening with Drew Barrymore and Tony Collette. And stop me if you've heard this before, but what you have are a pair of lifelong best friends. Stop. Who... Yeah, okay. 
<laughs> of course, yeah. So you've got Drew Barrymore, who's the American friend. You've yeah. got Tony Collette, who's the wild child British friend. Right. And her mum is Jackie Bissett. I went through the whole movie and didn't notice this. Uh, I was like, who, who is it? It was Tilda Swinton in... Uh, Tilda Swinton? Is it Tilda Swinton who's in Trainwreck? It's Tilda Swinton in Trainwreck all yes. over again. Um, but it's that sort of an effect, because she's buried under prosthetics, etc. And... Um, so, this is basically a combination of Beaches, Stepmom, Steel Magnolias, those kind of films, but a little bit of a contemporary British flair. And so, you have the lifelong best friends. One is the straight laced, want to save the world American type. The other one is the, you know, the rock child kind of a type who marries Dominic Cooper because why wouldn't you? And, uh, oh. Exactly. And so Mrs. Dominic Cooper, uh, one day, is diagnosed with breast cancer. I say one day, this is within minute one of the film. And what we have then is an exploration of her treatment of said cancer, um, which then in turn starts to affect every other aspect of her life, causing a sort of rift in her friendship with Drew Barrymore, who is also dealing with her own troubles, namely the pressures put upon her marriage by, inf- by uh, infertility. I was going to say infidelity then. Infertility. <laughs> uh, she's trying to have a child with her husband who's played by Paddy Considine, because if you want the movie to be any good, you've got to go and get Paddy Considine. And, uh, well, yeah, so what's going to happen? Is, is, is everything going to fall to pieces? Can Drew and Tony patch it up and make amends? Here's a clip. The chemo took forever. My job, Millie said, was to turn up with treats and try not to be annoying. So, Jess, you're in charge of these. Recycled vomit bowls. Well, I won't need those because I took my meds. I might need one after seeing that enormous needle go into your veins. Do you want one of my pills? Girls, we're not at Glastonbury. You can't just swap pills. Oh, you spoil sport. Yeah, well, look, anti-nausea tablets work for 80% of patients. But just in case Millie's in the special 20s. Hey, technical equipment. Thank you. Good. Keep an eye on her. Thank you, Sam. So wine and chocolates movie there for you, Calvin. Sounds like every summer Waterstones bestseller paperback. <laughs> Are they always bestsellers, though? Yeah, uh, they, really? that's the that's the troubling thing. There, yeah. There's a group of five every year. Fair, fair enough. So, actually, I quite like this. I, I liked it quite a lot, actually. It's got this really sparky, really witty, really fun little screenplay. And it's by uh, Morwenna Banks, who has written some really bizarre things. Mostly she wrote Up the Women, which was the one with, uh, I want to say Rebecca Front. Uh, but she also was written for Peppa Pig, apparently. Okay. <laughs> oh, no, sorry, she's been an actress for Peppa Pig. That's the okay. thing. So she's an actress turned writer, I think. And what you've got is this, and this is a surprising thing to say out loud, jovial yet unflinching sort of a depiction of cancer on film. Right. It, it's kind of strange because you've not really seen it handled in this sort of way. There is this sense of, let's go really real with it, mm. but let's keep it funny. And okay. it kind of worked. There, there are moments in it, in its lower moments where it did remind me of Maybe Baby, but uh, which is never a good thing. Mm. But although I have a soft spot for that, I like Tom Holland's character in Maybe Baby. But other than that, it is it is a lot of fun. Um, the the success of the film obviously has to be the the two leads. There, it has to be Drew Barrymore and Tony Collette, and they work really really well together. <laughs> and they have such great chemistry. And I was told that they were on the Alan Carr program, whatever that is, on Friday nights. Is it Friday night with Alan Carr? Or something like that? Is it? I, I, I don't know. Chatty man. Chatty man. That's, that's it. And, and apparently. 
apparently they were just incredibly stilton on it but uh, that doesn't show in this film they are terrific they have great screen oh. chemistry they have a lot of fun the movie is great uh, Catherine Hardwick's director of this I didn't know this until the very very end I thought of course because there is a strange visual playfulness to it in spite of the rather harrowing subject matter yeah cancer doesn't tend to be depicted in a way that is usually visually arresting no no it does not and lo and behold Catherine Hardwick has found a way to make it sort of visually interesting um it is it will there are tears in places there are laughter in others and there are times when there's both at the same time it is a lot of fun it is a lot of sadness it is a lot of emotion but you know what I, I really enjoyed it miss you already I have fond memories of it already so yes I miss it already I would say the girl on the train that's uh, that's an interesting one as well that yes. keeps that's, uh, that, that train keeps car's chugging on. on keeps, keeps chugging, chugging on. on the train car's filling yeah, up yeah, yeah, yeah. mixing metaphors <laughs> with such douchebags standing room only (laughs) so of course we now have uh, Chris Evans and Jared Leto are being pursued to play the male character because this is an interesting thing about the film it's got it's it's it's, female cast members they're all stocked up there are no men in this film yet. it's mostly a female cast it is from the novel and and then we now need sort of guys to play the husbands it turns out so you know Chris Evans Jared Leto because apparently the women behind the film are incredibly optimistic and (laughs) (laughs) and they really like Super Hero movies apparently. They do. Can you just imagine that casting office? Yeah. Hmm. Who 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 represents husband to you? Jared Leto. Yeah. The, you wouldn't want to be in that office, would you? It's just no. one of the most optimistic people in the world. So Chris Evans and Jared Leto are being pursued to play the husbands of I think Haley Bennett and and Rebecca Ferguson. Yes. And then you've got Emily Blunt who's Emily Blunt, who's recently divorced and will Oh likely... that yeah. Will likely be getting some oh, kind of I've husband not, at some I've point. I've not read the book. I'm told it's brilliant. Yeah, so am I. But and it's from the it's from Tate Taylor though, who directed the hell. It's one of those things. I worked at Waterstones and I sold eight thousand copies of them, but never read it. So one interesting one we've got coming out this week, of course, is Captive with Kate Mara and David Oyelowo. Now, Kate Mara, it'd be an interesting time having her back on the well, big screen. Yes, that's. Sudden. Sudden. But I think she needs to get in there and pick things up as quickly as possible, or else we won't be seeing much of her. No, I think she went from House of Cards to one of the worst, probably the worst superhero movie to date, if we're honest. Yeah. And, uh, yes. I mean, it makes Spider-Man 3 look coherent. There is that. However, she is now back. She is back in a more coherent film, and she's starring opposite David Oyelowo, who most of us remember, well, know best, really, as Martin Luther King in Selma. Not myself. I think of him more as Danny from Spooks in the first three seasons. This is my age, you see. I just remember the early seasons of Spooks. I know you were still a toddler. I was still a toddler, yes. Yeah, you've probably still still been a toddler when Spooks started. But, uh, yeah, so David Oyelowo, who turned up last year in Selma, should have had an Oscar but didn't he really should have he really should have terrific performance terrific movie Um, and the best part is we got a chance to sit down and talk to him fantastic which we will play for you now so David uh, thanks for joining us the film is uh, Captive you play Brian Nichols and this is based on the uh, the best selling book The uh, Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren now this has been uh, called a faith based uh, film and I was just wondering this has that is quite a popular market at the moment uh, what about your own faith did you bring to the project well I, you know yes I'm I'm a Christian myself and so faith plays a big part in my own life but you know I I do think that uh, faith based movies 
have a reputation and sometimes justified for being very proselytory, very preachy, very on the nose and, and having a bit of an agenda. What I, we try to do with this film is um, to have a, a, a film that has faith as an integral, organic part of it, but not something that sort of is walloping you over the head, you know, as these true events played out in 2005 in Atlanta. You have a murderer, uh, a man who killed four people in a day, taking a meth addict hostage uh, for seven hours. That's not your average faith-based movie. Um, but, you know, Pastor Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, which Ashley Smith read to Brian Nichols, that's what happened. And it helped these two people turn a much-needed corner. Now you have uh, said that you didn't enjoy uh, getting into the uh, into the actual mindset of uh, Brian Nichols, and that what he did was reprehensible. His actions were reprehensible. I'm just wondering, how did you mentally prepare uh, to play that part? Well, you you have to put those opinions to the side, and you have to try and understand who he was, why he did what he did, and to not judge him for doing what he did, which is. Tricky, uh, c considering what he did do, but um, he is a three-dimensional human being who did do what he did, but it's the humanity within him that made him stop uh, when he was confronted with Ashley Smith, who was an also a broken person who somehow reawakened the humanity within him to make him not kill her and eventually let her go and give himself up. And so even though... On, on face value, he is a monster who had done these terrible things. Through the course of the film, his humanity is reawakened. Well, it's a terrific pair of performances from yourself and Kate Mara. Um, I'm just wondering, was it uh, really important to you that Brian wasn't written in too sympathetic a way? Was the, the level of sympathy and, and, and non-justification, was that integral to how you saw the character? Absolutely. It was, it's one of the, the most difficult things about the film because... Four people are dead and their, their families' lives are forever changed because of what he did. Out of respect to them and out of acknowledgement of, of the, the, the devastation of what he did, you can't, you know, the, the film cannot be a film that excuses what he did or, or somehow an, an exoneration of that. But in order for Ashley Smith's life to take the turn that it took, she attributes part of her salvation, as it were, to him. And so that side of the story does also need to be acknowledged. It's the real tricky balance, which is why in the first half of the film, he doesn't talk. He is just a killing machine. He is someone who you are able to project all your fears and judgment onto until he encounters her and she's the one who helps to turn him somehow. Now, he is serving multiple life sentences for what he did, and I would say quite rightly so. So it's not one of those happy ending movies where he sees the light and then they get married and skip off into the sunset or something crazy Very like film. that. Very different film. Uh, that would be the Hollywood version of the film. But, um, you know, this is real and it's, it's what happened, and, um, and that's why we felt a need to tell it in that way. So this is your uh, your third time producing in as little as two years. Mm -hmm. um, is there? Do you think that, that is the the future for yourself? Producing the roles, uh, producing the projects that you take roles in. Well, I think as an actor, you can either be part of the solution or be part of the problem. And so for me personally, there's no point complaining about the nature of the roles I get to play, and if I'm unsatisfied with them. 
if there is anything I can do to change the narrative around that. And so um, a film like, like Captive is one I'm inspired by, and, and that's what you need to produce movies. Making movies is so tough. So it has to, you have to pick projects that you just, every morning, would just want to see that film exist in the world. And so all the films I've produced thus far and I'm going to do in the future are ones that address the, the needs I have as an actor, as a producer, as an audience member, and, you know, uh, stop me complaining and, and, and keep me doing. Is that uh, an important aspect to deciding which films you want to develop as a producer, whether or not you can sort of stick with them for the elongated production period? Absolutely, because you know, you're no matter the the size of the film, you're talking either about hundreds of thousands or more likely millions of dollars or pounds that you have to raise. And uh, it's a very, very competitive market. There are lots of people who want to do it and are doing it very well. And so, you know, this film was four years of hard work. Selma was seven years of hard work. You know, uh, most of the films I do take about five to seven years to come to fruition. So you better be inspired to do them if they're going to get made. And uh, finally, uh, sort of a congratulations. Uh, you actually are the first black man to play James Bond, I believe. <laughs> you have beaten Idris Elba to the punch. Oh, dear. In an audiobook. In an audiobook, uh, but it still counts. No. <laughs> okay, well, as long as you think so. Trigger Mortis, um, I believe, is the, that's is right, the audiobook. That's right, that's right, yes. No, Anthony Horowitz's great new book. I know that was an honour and a pleasure to do, and I, and I will take the moniker happily, but... Uh, Yes, it's it's. I, I'm having to correct people so often <laughs> saying, "Oh my goodness, you're the new Bond in an audiobook in an audio." One final one though, Star Wars. Star Wars. I do the voice in Star Wars. Do Rebels. The voice. No, not carrying through to the movies. I'm I'm hiding behind behind the camera on these two franchises, aren't I? But uh, but yeah, it certainly makes my kids very happy. So, of course, on to the review then. So, Captive, which is, of course, produced by Iloo. And uh, it's, it, this is, I don't know if you know the true story of this one. This is the story of a, a struggling single mother who is trying to get back her daughter who's been taken away from her because, of course, she, she the mother, not the daughter, is, is, a, is struggling with addiction. Okay. Uh, specifically to ice or meth. She refers to it as ice and yet it's meth. Anyway, um... It's a strange little thing in the film. And uh, one night, the night before she is due to make an appearance at her daughter's school fashion show, which is a sort of watershed moment in their relationship, uh, she is taken hostage by an escaped murderer and rapist. Okay. Played by, of course, Oiloa. That's quite a twist. It's quite a twist. And the pair spend an evening together in, in, in the confines of her apartment, during which she finds solace in the self-help book of The Divine Purpose... And can can you see where this is going? Yeah. Oh, is this? I think I've heard of this. Right. Okay. We've got a clip. What is that? What are you doing? It's just a book. A book. The purpose-driven life. Read it to me. It all starts with God. It's not about you. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. The greatest tragedy is not death but life without purpose. When life has meaning, you can bear almost anything. Could you forgive me? I don't know. Maybe God can. Right, so the first thing to point out with this movie is, first of all, Oyelowo is is terrific. 
he is terrific. I can't dispute that at Mm. all. I actually think Kate Mara is very good in it as well. I think she has a way of of presenting the addiction aspects of the story uh, rather superbly. It's not one of those cliched, trembling, I gotta have it. it, It's not one of those trembling, I gotta have it moment kind of thing. It is, it's presented as more of an emotional problem rather than a physical one. And and, And the story plays it in that way as well. The story plays it in very much, it's a coping mechanism that happens to have the physical byproduct yes. of addiction, and I really like that representation. I think it's a, a really well well done aspect of the film. Um, there are aspects of the film that everybody involved struggles with, but the addiction is not one of them. Mm. Oyelowo has um, a, a pretty well written and well performed take on Brian Nichol, the the in reality escaped murderer and rapist, yes. which is he doesn't present him as particularly uh, just he doesn't present him as justified or potentially or anything like that there is no unnecessary sort of softening to him no. he is played with all the requisite nastiness that he needs yeah, to there's be there's no oh it's a moral quandary it's yeah. just a human being no it's it, just it's none of those just a nasty... those, oh I'm just I, you wouldn't know where I'm from kind yeah. of not one of those performances which you think oh bored yawn you know done mm. this um, it, what he's done is he's played this relatively to the bone. He's played it very well, and it works because his performance naturally imbues it with just a slight hint of sympathy and regret. Not a full-on angle, not a subplot, not a subtext, anything like that, but just a hint enough for you to think, "Okay, I see why. Okay, I get this." Yeah. It is then also implied that uh, it, not implied, sorry, but outright stated that he, in his own mental state, does not believe he ever did anything wrong, and with. Oyelowo's performance, you completely believe that. Works perfectly. Well, there you now, no. it is directed by Jerry Jameson, who has a long-established career of directing TV movies. Now, the reason I bring that up, can you take a stab? I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark that this is filmed like a TV movie. Yes, and it plays like a TV movie. It's also then got Michael K. Williams and Leonor Varela as two cops looking for uh, Brian Nichols, and Oh my God, they are awful. Leonor Morella <laughs> is puts in the worst performance of her admittedly not well, not really high profile career. Anyway, this makes her turns the love interest in Blade Two look accomplished. Michael <laughs> K. Williams gets a moment that you just start. I he just you just eye roll every time he opens his mouth because this is a great actor who's given expositional TV movie dialogue. Yeah, and when it gets to a stage when he's you know he has that cliched moment where he attacks the vending machine and you're thinking, Jesus, Michael, this. Is a career low. <laughs> um, one of the notes, because it is very much a TV movie, I yeah. can't call it much more than that, and it isn't really much better quality than a TV movie, save for the two central performances, and that's when the film works best, when it focuses on those two. When it goes back to the cops, bored, you will you will mentally check out, but then when you are back with Oilo and Mara, you're fine, you're in good hands. Where the film does, however, show the cracks is in dealing with the actual book, which is central, which is yes. evidently central to the marketing. And you watch the film, and you think, okay, the marketing must have lied because that book and the fact that it exists only takes about 120 solid seconds of screen time if you slap it all together. So imagine my surprise then. Yeah. When you get to the end of the film and over the end credits, would well, you know what comes up, Calvin? The book. An episode of Oprah. 
Sorry? An episode of Oprah is played over the end... Clear an excerpt from an episode of Oprah is played over the end credits in which the real woman who Kate Mara is playing is talking to Oprah and told, yes, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you very much. Here is the writer of the book that saved your soul. And the writer turns up and tells us all about this book. And you're thinking, that's fantastic. I wish I'd seen a movie about your book. That sounds really interesting, mate. However, I have not seen an interesting movie about your book. I have seen a movie about David Oyelowo taking Kate Mara hostage and your book cameoed in it. Yeah. Yeah. With the latest film news and reviews, this is Offscreen. And we're back. So, shall we, uh, shall we deal with Mia Madre? Mia Madre. Which, as the film tells us, because it's one of those great films where it is a subtitled Italian film, but it also translates the title at the beginning for you, which I always find quite convenient. That's nice. Yeah, so Mia Madre, which of course my mother. Uh, this is the latest uh, from Palme d'Or winning filmmaker Nana Moretti. Nani Moretti, sorry. Um, and basically, this is a sort of, this is a sort of a weird cross-section. It's a contemporary drama um, about a, a female filmmaker, a female director, who's directing a film about um, a working-class uprising at a factory in Italy. And uh, she's making this film whilst dealing with the deteriorating health of her elderly mother. Uh, Margarita Bai plays the uh, the filmmaker, uh, whose name, incidentally, is Margarita. There's a lot of that going around. Well, though. It's strange, though. It's one of those uh, Charlie Sheen always plays Charlie type affairs. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, of course, in the meanwhile as well, she has to deal with an American actor named Barry Huggins, played by John Turturro. <laughs> Who claims to have made, I think it's 105 films in his 30 year career, and he's endlessly name dropping, talking about the time he worked with uh, Kubrick, etc. And, uh, well, Huggins' behaviour proves to be a tad, uh, tad trifling, we shall say. And, uh, well, here's a clip. Hello, Mr. Huggins. Yes, that's me. This is Stanley Kubrick. Ah. Well, oh. How can I get you the script? I said, UPS it. What if you're not home? I, if I'm not home, the guy will throw it over the gate, Lola Shelley. That's unbelievable. Mine doesn't. Anyway, I left for London, okay? We're just a traveling bag. I was supposed to shoot for one week, but they had told me, look, nobody shoots for one week with Kubrick. So, me and Madre there. Now, this is a strange one in that, uh, on the surface, there doesn't seem to be much more than a tenuous connection between the filmmaking aspect and the uh, the elderly mother aspect. Um, it does all start to come together towards the end. And don't get me wrong, it's, it's quite a moving film in places. Uh, Margarita Bai's performance as Margarita is is sort solid. Of, very Sort different. of a bizarrely meta concept. It is in a strange way. You can't help... If, if there is one... Uh, you can't help but at one point uh, think... Do you know what? I can almost imagine the English language remake of this starring Emma Thompson, but uh, oh. it's hard. It's hard not to have that thought through it. Um, there is this element in the middle of it all, though, which is John Turturro's character, and he is at once the most enjoyable and the most infuriating part <laughs> of the film because he's bilingual anyway in the film. He, he's equal parts Italian and uh, American. But he, the, the shtick with his character is his Italian isn't perfect, he constantly forgets his lines, he's more or less an incompetent actor, he's kind of over the hill. Right. And he does monopolise a lot of the runtime to the extent that you think, really, do we have to do, can we not move back to the story? Why are we still on this character? But then there are moments when he's actually a lot of fun and he's enjoyable, and you think, oh, okay, you're fair enough. Now... Uh, Moretti's uh, direction in this is uh, it, it's surprisingly sort of raw and soulful and this works in tandem with a screenplay which 
and it, it balances um, the the real with the dream sequence, with real with reality with dream sequences in a way that at times will really throw you. Okay. So Margarita periodically has what we think are real incidents where she lashes out at her mother, for instance, things like that. And these are and these turn out to be dream sequences. And we were told within a moment that it is a dream. But when you're in that moment, you think, "Wow, this is really going somewhere strange." Yeah. Um, and but is it is it one of those dream sequences where it is? Oh, it's not like she takes off her hat and she's a wolf. Or no, 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 obviously I'm not. <laughs> Saying that. I'm saying is it one of those things where it's overused, where it's no, no. The, by the time the end of the movie, you could have, well, I could have done with two less dream sequences. No, it's not. I think it's only about three or four of them oh, well, in there. Um, but they are they are all quite poignant and they do serve a purpose. And it is about the emotional frailty of Margarita as she carries on through through the sort of process of uh, kind of making peace with and then saying goodbye to her mother through her condition. And of course, then through all that, you've got the filmmaking side of it as well. Um, I will admit, I personally found the filmmaking stuff slightly more interesting mm. um, because I don't, although the relationship from the daughter's perspective was very well defined, I don't think there was enough of a character to the mother for my liking. Uh, as I say, John Turturro, equal parts, best and worst thing about the film, but quite a solid sort of uh, almost meta-commentary drama in a sense and yeah, decent little Italian film Keanu Reeves has got an interesting one we've got yes. to talk about that we've Rally got to talk about Keanu we've got to talk about Keanu who doesn't love Keanu Rally Car right which is a Chinese movie Brilliant. described as a Chinese take on Cannonball Run good starring God. Keanu Reeves good God what's not to love in that that sounds beautiful. I love this sort of trend lately of people like Adrian Brody and Keanu Reeves and these kind of like stock tall white men with beards <laughs> just being hoarded by Chinese investors and taken to their movies well, to get them some sense of legitimacy. Well, that's it. If it gets them the big tentpole equivalents, then who cares? You yeah. know, I want to see a cannonball run where you Keanu Reeves. Absolutely. And how dare Universal make us wait for such or Universal or Paramount or make us wait for such a concept. The Chinese are right in there and they get it done. Exactly. And we respect them for we it. We damn, damn well do. Right, should we do the box office top ten then, Calvin? Let's. Number ten. Bill? Which I really enjoy. It's a horrible history to take on, you know, the lost years of Will Shakespeare. And it's, it's got a little bit of Mel Brooks in there, a little bit of Monty Python, a little bit of... Uh, yeah, carry on, even, I suppose. But, you know, it's a family film, a proper family film that you can watch with the kids and you can watch with the grown-ups. It's got a lot of humour that I laughed my ass off and still am to this day. It's like, the kind of thing we get very rarely nowadays and has been supplanted by 12A. Exactly, much to the sort of chagrin of both you and I, it would seem. Number nine. Battle of Britain at 75. Not a clue, and this is the snobbiest thing I've ever said out loud. I've not a clue, because it wasn't pressure. Right, well. Number eight. A Walk in the Woods. I really enjoyed this. Do you know, a lot of people really were down on it. They this is like, the Bill Bryson adaptation. This is the Bill Bryson adaptation. A lot of people be really down this. Oh, it's got it's got a kind of plot. It's just crass. Oh, it's just you know old lads in the woods. Yeah, that's the fun of it. Yes, that's the fun of it. Those lads in the woods are Robert Redford and Nick Nolte. Yeah. And what's not to love? I mean, I I I laugh my I laugh myself senseless at the idea that you know a black bear is now more feral is now less feral looking than Nick Nolte. <laughs> and oh, goes at Bryson. Always got Bryson. That's how he says it. You tell me Bryson. And I, I, you know, I had a lot of fun. I forgot how much I enjoyed Nick Nolte on screen actually. Number seven. We have the secret cinemas. The Empire Strikes Back. You told me you almost saw this. I I almost saw this, and then I realised I'm a student, and the price of the secret cinema is ridiculous. Is it really? I don't know. It's eighty quid a ticket. Wow. Yeah, it's jumped up a little bit for Star Wars, but it is eighty pounds a ticket. Wow. Which, by the time you factor in travel and getting a costume, if you're like me, it's 
kind of ludicrous for a movie God, that I've, you're a nerd. yeah for the for the for a movie I've seen over thirty times. Great movie deserves to be in the box office top ten. Not for secrets. So if we paid you a pound for every time you've seen The Empire Strikes Back... I could probably almost afford, afford to go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Number six. Straight Outta Compton. Have you seen Straight Outta Compton? I have not, but I really want to. You really want to? Yeah. Oh, I'm surprised. I wouldn't have thought that would be your kind of thing. No, my sort of latent inner gangster really wants to go uh, and see it. Fair enough. It's that, it's that Bedfordshire massive, yo. yeah. Uh, right. I I, uh, I liked Straight Outta Compton. I had a lot of fun watching it. I don't really see it as much of a true story drama. However, you know what? It is an entertaining drama. Yes. And and really, does it need to be anything more than that? It I don't think so. ironically whitewashes the story of the NWA. <laughs> Pretty much. Number five. Inside Out in Threed. Now, you've seen Inside Out, presumably. I have not, no. You have not? No. My, oh, okay. my girlfriend managed to go and see it and has not shut up about it since. <laughs> If well, I have to hear the Bing Bong song once more, I'm going to put myself through a wall. The Bing Bong song is amazing. <laughs> Although not quite as amazing as any line of dialogue given to Lewis Black. And uh, it's a very fun film, very touching film. Vintage Pixar, you know, it must have vintage, typical Pixar in one mm. sense. We'll have you laughing and crying in equal accords. You know, lovely, colourful, bright imagery, imaginative, looks good in 3D. Can't really say much better than that, really. Number four. M. Night Shyamalan's The Visit. Do you say Shyamalan? Yes. You know it's Shyamalan, right? Shyamalan. No, it's Shyamalan. Shyamalan. Pronounce Shyamalan. Shyamalan. It's Shyamalan. This entire conversation is more interesting than the movie, so let's just move on. That is very true. It is more interesting than this god-awful movie. Number three. Maze Runner, The Scorch Trials. Now, you're of the age where I presume you would actually have read The Maze Runner. Have you read The Maze Runner? No, I was slightly too old when it came out. I hit The Hunger Games. You're actually at that age where they should cast you in The Maze Runner. Pretty much, yeah. I I hit The Hunger Games, the first book, and then I am of the age where the later two books were gone for me. I I never got to them. Okay, so the the Harry Potter crowd. Yes, The Maze Runner is one of those things which I entirely miss, but I am fully aware that it's only there, much like Divergent, because of Hunger Games. Pretty much, uh, it's hard to tell it apart from those two franchises particularly it's convoluted nonsensical boring plodding uninteresting and then there's some zombies show up and it becomes all those things all over again number two it's tom hardy and tom hardy in legend we're hardy and hardy (laughs) just got a bit muppets there for you um thank you it's because when i'm at home i get the marley and marley song every time christmas is mentioned and the muppets because the muppets tv show is on this week uh right i like legend um it really wants to be a scorsese movie but sadly it is too cartoonish to be a score it is a cartoon yes it is effectively a lads cartoon starring tom hardy and you know emily brownie who looks oh she looks well gorgeous in there oh but she's got this awful voiceover. You know how Dexter redefined what we did with voiceovers? Yes. Yeah, this sends us right back to the beginning with this, and not nobody in London didn't know the craze. And you're like, why? Oh my goodness if you're narrating me. It, if you're narrating it like that, why are you acting in the film with a completely different accent? How long after filming have you done this voiceover? Number one. The requisite event movie, Everest in IMAX 3 <laughs> Right, what you want is vertical limit, what you get is the perfect storm. That that's the best way to describe God Everest, and that's, it's a two-hour two-hour movie, right? You've seen the trailer. They're on Everest. They have they get caught in the weather. Bad yes. things happen, right? Two-hour film. That weather doesn't hit until an hour fifteen minutes in. Unforgivable. Un- unforgivable. Now the only reason it should take that long to get to your concept is if you're, if you're going to be Batman and yes. you have to be trained by Absolutely. Liam Neeson to be a ninja. That's Absolutely. the only way. Some film news then. Should we have a look at what's going on? We've got we've got a Jack Reacher two villain. No, we do. Patrick Hughesinger. 
who I, I confess I do not know. I no idea. No, uh, he, he was in one show on Bravo. He's that Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce. Yes. Isn't that Cuddy from House who's in that? I believe so. And he's in something called Quantum Break, but I have yes. no idea. Qu- Quantum Break is a vastly delayed concept thing where it's a TV show that is influenced by people playing a video game. Isn't that what Defiance was meant to be? What's meant to be, yes. And this is trying to do the same thing, but with photorealistic video gaming. Oh, okay, fair enough. So, Patrick Usinger, villain of Jet Reacher 2. There we go. Right, let's have some fun then uh, with Solace, which is the latest story. Anthony Hopkins, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, Abby Cornish, and none of them Colin Farrell, as it happens. So, concept. You're going to love this one, Kel. I'm sure I am. Hit so, me. The- Anthony Hopkins is a retired psychic. Brilliant. Who- who has moved into seclusion in a remote farmhouse following the death of his uh, his young daughter. As psychics I want to as do. As psychics I want to do. Uh, it's never explained why, as a psychic, he couldn't see that his daughter was going to get leukaemia, but ne- never mind. Naturally, naturally. No, no. Uh, it should be pointed out as well, Hopkins is one of those Dead Zone-style, Johnny Smith-style sidekicks. You know, uh, psychics, not sidekicks. <laughs> um, who, you know, touches an object and has a psychic vision relating to it. Said visions are played to us in the form of what seem to be lifted excerpts from MTV2 videos back in the day. So for anyone my age, it's that's so Raven. For anyone your Cross age, with Hannibal. Yeah, for your age, for your age, yeah, that that is so Raven. Um, <laughs> so Jeffrey Dean Morgan, an FBI agent, and his partner Abby Cornish come to Hopkins one day and say, you know what, we've got this serial killer. We can't quite seem to to, to nail this guy down. Um, can you use your uh, psychic jiggery poker and uh, and help us uh, nail him? Yeah, help us book him. Oh, what was the term? Catch him. Hunt him, trap him, whatever they do. Uh, only there is a slight kink in the tail, which is the killer, it seems, is none other than another psychic. Here's a clip. He knew that we would arrive at the apartment at exactly 4.16 because he knows everything. See, it's just like me. He sees things. Only he's better. A whole lot better. The whole thing's a trap and we're walking right into it. He's got to talk to me. He's way ahead of us. We're doing exactly what he wants us to do. First things first. Yeah. How did this make it past the pitch? I, I have no idea. <laughs> um, right, it's, it's worth pointing out as well. So this is directed by uh, Fonso Piart, uh, who seems to have studied TV shows exclusively for this. And I We've do got mean, a lot of this this week. Yeah, it, he seems to have studied procedural TV shows. You know, your cr- like a criminal minds or yeah. the following or something like that. Yeah. And, and that's what it seems to be. If you told me genuinely that this was a pilot for, uh, you know, a sort of replacement series to fill the time slot left by the Kevin, Sp- uh, Kevin, Sp- Kevin Bacon series, the following... And that they had instead given up and just decided, you know what, release the two parts of the DVD, no one will notice, we'll call it a film. It does sound like that. a TV show concept, it sounds like I believe it. FBI agents team up with a psychic to catch psychics, that's... Do you know what, great TV show, yeah. I'd watch that, why yeah. not? You know, I, but as an Anthony Hopkins starring... I want to point out, when he gets to the very end of the film... And it says, executive producer Anthony Hopkins... Everything makes sense. Suddenly everything comes together. Yeah. You think, yes. Now, this is uh, terrible. Really, <laughs> really terrible. Now, I want to I introduce you to Sean Bailey. Sean Bailey is the screenwriter of this god-awful piece of crap. Okay. And Sean Bailey is a terrible writer. Okay. He is a terrible, terrible writer who, for one thing, cannot write a line of dialogue without it being made entirely out of exposition. What has he done before this little shot? Uh, off the top of my head, I, I did have all this down this morning, I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, I, I want to point out that one of the earliest lines of dialogue in this film 
after they because it literally opens with them finding yet another dead body. Brilliant. And Jeffrey Dean Morgan saying, "I'm going to see him," and Abby Cornish saying, "I think that's a mistake." So like, yes, but he can help us. I think it's a big mistake. Oh my god! And you're thinking, really? This is no, 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 no. This film, first and foremost, does not deserve to be on a cinema screen. It doesn't deserve to be put in front of willing humans. But the idea it's on a cinema screen is is just just baffling. Um, so you've got the psychic flash sequences, which look like. Uh, MTV2 videos to the extent that I'm pretty sure the member, various members of Corn are currently considering legal action because they really could get away with it. Um, you've got this screenplay which, as I say, is made up in, all the dialogue's made up of exposition. It, it establishes rules early on for the Dead Zone style psychic and then bins the rules whenever they need to introduce a chase sequence because all of a sudden Anthony Hopkins can just walk down the street and say, go left, go right, oh, oh he's in that building there. You're like, you haven't touched anything. No. Unless you've had your hands in your pocket on your own junk you've touched nothing <laughs> you know what I mean Abby Cornish puts in one of the worst performances of any actor or actress this year That's... Abby Cornish in this movie has been out acted by Adam Sandler in Pixels and I am not Good exaggerating God, man. not exaggerating for Christ's sake Cubert in Pixels has <laughs> out acted Abby Cornish in this movie. Jeffrey Dean Morgan's just doing that requisite sort of um, one-size-fits-all, I'm slightly grizzled alpha male lead. So he's the supernatural father again. He is the father from Supernatural, complete with the shirt buttoned down to just below his nipples kind Brilliant. of thing. Of course, yeah. yeah. You know the exact yeah. look as well. The slight hint of chest hair. The slight hint of chest hair and that five o'clock shadow, but of course it's 11 o'clock if yes. you're Jeffrey Dean Morgan. It, and then you've got Anthony Hopkins who's doing the whole, I am wry and witty and cleverer than you. Sort of right, like, well, yeah. Like, uh, so he's being okay. Anthony Hopkins. Yes, you, you are. You are. We get that, Sir Tony. But however, <laughs> this film is not worth you. No. And should not ever have been committed to celluloid. It is ropey as hell. At one point, and it's so badly written that at one point, the fact that there is a very, very ignorant, offhand sort of sentiment that uh, all gay people just come with HIV is not one of the worst things about it. That's how bad this film is. Jesus Christ. It's 2015. It's 2015. I know, I have the same thought. Um, and it's it's just awful. I mean, there's no flair to it whatsoever. It, it, it looks it just looks like a run-of-the-mill TV Directed pilot. lethargically, acted terribly. Yep. You Constructed with the level of fan fiction that would... That's an insult to fan fiction, right? It is, yes. Seriously, this is Kirk and Spock getting it on in an elevator level of fan fiction. Um, the, another level as well, it has one of the, this ridiculously comically, laugh-out-loud funny, <laughs> overblown score to it as well by BT... Who is BT? Who is BT? BT is a person. That's his name. No, it's not. It is, and he does film scores. He did the score to Blade 2, you know, interestingly enough. Seriously. And Fast and, and the first Fast and the Furious. His name is BT. Okay. Which I think should presumably stand for Barely Talented. Um, but at one point, his score for this film... And this, there is a moment in which Anthony Hopkins walks up a flight of stairs and it is scored with all the faux grandeur of Welcome to Jurassic Park. That sort And you're like, he's walking up a flight of stairs. What's wrong with you people? No. Right. To call it ropey is to do a disservice to the manufacturers of Hessian products. It's just awful. 
Seriously, the the only thing I can say positive about this film is that it has the courtesy, the good grace, the manners to open with the dictionary definition of the word solace as both a noun and a verb. And I can't help but think that the reason it does that is so that when you leave the cinema, you know exactly what it is you are in need of. Well, at least we know. We also have, of course, Lara Pulver. Uh, who I, who well. I very much like. I, what a shock! You're a yes. fan. You're a fan of the the naked chick from Sherlock. What, what are the odds? It's it's the pale um, thing with the red lipstick and the dark hair. Okay, I'm. <laughs> no one can say you don't have a type. I'm a simple man. What? She, she's joined Underworld. Underworld Five. Underworld yeah. Five, because this is apparently a franchise that just will not die. No, I mean, <laughs> much figures, like the vampires. Much, much like the immortals, it centers around this franchise will not die. No. And now it's got Lara Pulver. Is she a villain? Is she a hero? Is it been, we have been no real? idea. No they, idea. They keep casting people for this movie and telling us nothing about them. It makes writing the news incredibly easy. Should we talk about life then, Calvin? I believe the meaning of it is 42. Apparently so. In this case, however, life is a movie starring Dane DeHaan and Robert Pattinson, which uh, half of that sentence should make me vomit, but uh, actually in this case, strangely, it works out quite well. So It doesn't even matter which half you're referring to, to be honest, because after Amazing Spider-Man 2, it could be either. <laughs> Well, funnily enough, actually, Dane DeHaan's performance in Amazing Spider-Man 2 is something that comes in, comes to mind when you watch the film, because he's playing James Dean. So he's right. doing that sort of brooding, proto-emo kind okay, of thing. Okay, so this, without is, this even... is the James Dean biography movie with his photographer that you weren't aware of until a week ago. Well, I, I wasn't aware of the movie. I wasn't yeah. aware of the photographer either, but I wasn't aware of the movie <laughs> until a week ago. You were aware of James Dean. I was aware of the existence of James Dean. The actor, not the porn star. The actor, not the porn star. Spelled differently, though, I'll have you know. Oh. Right, so this is from uh, Anton Corbin, who was the director of Control uh, back in 2007. I don't know if you ever saw that. Um, this is now his fourth film. He's directed The American Since and A Most Wanted Man with Philip oh, Seymour Hoffman. Yes. Uh, great director, it turns out. And this is his fourth film. And you know what? He's here to remind us yet again, I am one to watch. I am an interesting director. You should respect me thusly. And you know what? He kind of deserves it, actually. So this is the story of James Dean, who has a chance encounter with a struggling young photographer, Dennis Stark, played by Rob Patterson, at a Hollywood party shortly before the release of East of Eden in 1955. Stark sees something in James Dean, like a potential. This guy could really be the star of something. Yeah. And he go, fights tooth and nail to get Life magazine to sign off on a photo essay of James Dean, the star of tomorrow, as it were. No sooner has he put his future into Dean's hands, however, than it soon comes to light that Dean isn't really up for taking on the limelight. He's not no. really on board with the loss of his freedom and the pressure that comes with it. And it may bring them both down as a result. Here's a clip. They just keep coming at me. I just keep walking toward me. That was great, Jimmy. Are you still going to Indiana? That's a night. Yeah, I think I want to come. So Dane DeHaan, as James Dean, what's not to love? That's that's great casting. You see a picture of him, yes, James Dean, yeah, perfect. Makes sense. Right, this film is full of little touches that really, really make it work. And one of them that I, I thought was really particularly good was they've, they've gone and gotten the real photos and the real footage that, that are recorded and taken within the film. And when these are presented to us in film, as it were, 
they are of the real Dean and not of okay. Dane DeHaan. It, it is lucky, though, that D- Dane DeHaan looks just enough like James yeah, Dean. because otherwise can... that could be incredibly immersion-breaking. It, it kind of is like that. You can actually, it kind of works. In a strange way, it does work. Um, Robert Pattinson fares pretty well. However, it is it is Dane DeHaan's movie as James Dean. Could call him James Dane, as it were, in this. Hmm. Please don't ever do that again. What? The, the, no, no, okay, I'll never do the Doctor Evil thing again. Um, so... The only problem I have with this is it's well written, it's well directed, it's well acted. The only issue I have with it is whenever the story goes to focus on Robert Pattinson, all of a sudden it's a lot duller. Right. Now, that's not a reflection of Pattinson. He's very good in this film. I, I it's the best I have best performance I've ever seen Pattinson give. Well However, if that character is just simply not an interesting character. You no. think just give us the chick. You've got Dane DeHaan. Why not just do a James Dean do it, yeah. You've got Anton Corbin. You've got Dane DeHaan. You've got this screenplay by Luke Davies, which is very, very good. And This should really probably have been a 20-minute segment in an otherwise excellent Dane DeHaan James Dean biopic. Yes. Pretty much, that is the case. Um, what he does, is, I say, Corbin's success here is he allows the film to ponder and salivate and, and basically obsess over Luke Davis's script, and that works in its favour. Davis's screenwriting is terrific here, largely in that it manages to take this particular story and make sort of culturally relevant, contemporarily relevant uh, statements about celebrity culture without the film descending into anachronism. Right. Which I think is actually that's a hell of an achievement. And well impressive. done. Fair play. It does threaten to go slightly too Hollywood whenever Ben Kingsley turns up as Jack Warner and he's just oh. enjoyably menacing. He's, it's a lot of fun, but you do think it's a little bit going a little bit Hollywood now, which is, although funny enough, he only really turns up in the scenes when they are actually in Hollywood. So. Makes sense. But, uh, do you know what? It is a great film. It, it's, I think it's perhaps a, a tad too overlong, mm. a bit too nuanced for a, probably a little bit more of the mainstream audiences. Sounds borderline pretentious but with just enough interest to sort of carry it yes exactly that works see yeah that kind of sells it so we kind of have to pick a film of the week really and I'll be honest I'm kind of torn and they're both the the Entertainment One releases so I'm kind of torn kind of torn between Life which I think is a really well made film or Miss You Already which just kind of made me laugh and cry I'd go with Miss You Already you go with Miss You Already yeah I'll go with Miss You Already Um, I think because of the drag factor the Robert Pattinson stuff in in Life although I do think uh, please get Dane DeHaan back and do a James Dean movie please it would be so good so we've got some interesting stuff to come next week in the meanwhile don't forget to go on onscreenfilm.com go in the competition section and check out all the things you can win on there which currently includes Age of Ultron DVDs you can win those nice. on there as well we've got Martian goodies to give away in a few days time as Ooh. well uh, we've got loads of stuff coming up we've got Cooties DVDs in the future all sorts on there and I got to watch Cooties recently and it was a lot of fun so uh, next week of course we've got Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway in the Intern. Are you excited about that one at all? Uh, only for Anne Hathaway. Only for Anne Hathaway. Mm. Okay, we've also got The Martian, of course. Which I'm terribly excited about. I accidentally walked... Uh, I actually accidentally overheard the final five minutes of the film Goddamn. before screening yesterday, which annoyed the hell out of me. Uh, we also have uh, Michael Fassbender's Macbeth. Oh finally. yes, with Marion Cotillard. With Marion Cotillard. Which is <laughs> also known as Assassin's Creed. Part one. Assassin's Creed Part One, the Shakespeare years. Yes. <laughs> and of course, Joseph Gordon Levitt is the Frenchiest Frenchman who has ever lived in The Walk. 
brackets Armax 3D. <laughs> so we've got all those to come and more next week off screen. This has been a Candy Store production for On Screen. I've been Van Connor. I've been Calvin Prickett. And we'll be back next week. Just show me the way to get out of here and I'll be on my way. You've been listening to Off Screen. For more news and reviews, visit onscreenfilm.com. 